Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth as we're taking a summer break from our study in Luke and we're going to be looking at the short little book of Ruth. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, um, out of the frying pan into the fire? Anyone? That's an old one? Yeah. The phrase, out of the firing pan into the fire, is used to describe the situation of moving from one bad and difficult situation to a worse one. It's often the result of trying to escape from a bad or difficult situation only to find yourself in a worse one. It finds its origin in a Greek poem from 15 BC. So it is a very old idiom, an old phrase, but it was first used in the English language in a pamphlet, in a pamphlet that was attacking William Tyndale. And some of you may know that William Tyndale was the, was the uh, translator of the English Bible from Greek and Hebrew, or the, the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into the English language. Wind up paying that price uh, by the way, by um, I think by fire. I believe, I think he was burned at the stake. In last week's passage, we looked at the book of Ruth from a 30,000 foot view, just looking at it in a big, uh, big, big way. And we learned that it's a beautifully written love story that demonstrates God's sovereignty and his providence, as well as human responsibility. But it also displays God's kindness and his faithfulness to his children as he continues his plan to redeem his people from their sins and reconcile them back to himself. In today's passage, as we look at Ruth 1 in the first five verses, we're going to consider the implications of God's sovereignty with that of human responsibility. And though the two may seem at odds, there's a lot of tension between those two thoughts. What we're going to see is that God uses both of those to fulfill his purposes and plans. The writer of Ruth begins a story about one Jewish family who jumped out of the frying pan actually into fire, causing them to experience great calamity and tragedy. With that, let's look at Ruth. Uh, the first five verses are going to be here, but again, I want to encourage you uh, to bring your Bible so you can take notes, so on and so forth, or on your tablet or your phone. Uh, if you would like a, a physical copy of the Bible, please let me know. I'd love to make sure that you have one when you leave. So going in Ruth, the author says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from the Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, Father, here is a very ancient book, 4,000-plus years old. But here we are to open it up. And we're to understand how this is profitable for us to know what is right, to know what is wrong, to know how to correct our ways and how to stay right. So give us wisdom as we delve into it and we consider human responsibility, but also your providence and your sovereignty. 
Lord, help us that we would refrain from jumping from the frying pan into the fire as we just consider your words and the warnings that are here, but also the promises that lay within its pages. Thank you so much for your word. Give us wisdom and discernment, and may we respond to the Spirit's work this morning. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the first five verses of Ruth serve as a prologue of the story. It's the beginning. It's introducing the settings and the characters and the plot. Now, as we learned from last week from Tony Moretta uh, in his book, uh, Ruth, Ruth takes place during a period that's filled with violence, idolatry, moral depravity, and civil war. This is the time of the judges. We studied that book last year. In this prologue, we are introduced to a family of four from Bethlehem. And as we know from Scripture, scripture Bethlehem plays a very important part in, the, in, in Scripture. It's, a, it's the birthplace of David, who will become king, and then eventually, of course, of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The characters introduced are Elimelech, and I'm going to give you names. For you and I, uh, you ever buy those little plaques or those things that tells you what your name is, what your name means, but then you go somewhere else and it tells you another different meaning of what your name might be? Well, in, in Hebrew, the names typically had a specific purpose. There was a description. There was, it was the heart and, the, and what was going on in the parent's mind. Well, Elimelech means this, and this is what's interesting. My God is king. My God is king. Is king, but what we're going to see, unfortunately, that is not necessarily true in his life and his choices. His wife Naomi, a, a very popular name even today, means sweet or pleasant or my delight. So there, and that's going to play a part as we go into the next few um, uh, weeks of this thing, where Naomi says, "No longer call me Naomi, for my I am bitter." Hence, why she says that. Then we see his two sons. Malon means sick. I'm not sure why she would name her child sick, but maybe he had a tough uh, uh, beginning. And then Kilion, which means pining, wanting something better, something desirous. Then there's the two daughter-in-laws. Ruth means friendship. I don't know if you knew that, but in Hebrew it means friendship, while Orpah means gazelle or stubborn. I'm not sure how you get gazelle or stubborn out of those two, but that's where we are. Now, the author then points out three observations about this family, and I'm sure you picked them up. I'm not going to be teaching you anything new, but let's look at those three things. The first one, the first observation is that of a famine in the land of Israel that prompts this family to move to the country of Moab. Now, it seems that the famine, the famine was localized to the land of Israel since they moved somewhere else. Ironically, Bethlehem itself means house of bread. But at this time, there's no bread in Bethlehem. There's a drought, there's a drought, some type of thing that's causing a famine. However, without the prospects of feeding his family and that it's low, he decides to move. He decides to move his family east to Moab. It seems by using the word sojourn, as we see there, that they went to sojourn, that their initial attention was to wait out the famine in Moab. They were anticipating a short visit uh, until the rains returned, the land was fertile there in Bethlehem, and they can return there for farming. Famines in scripture are typically associated with judgment and testing. God's judgment on a nation or testing their faith. Even the Hebrew fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all left the promised land, the land of Canaan, when there was famine in the land. Uh, two of them, uh, all three of them to Egypt. 
Now, if you would turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, I want to look at judgment, how this becomes a judgment. Moses warned their forefathers before entering the promised land of the possibility of this famine if they were unfaithful to the covenant of God. Deuteronomy chapter 28, fifth book in the Old Testament. Find Genesis, move your way to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Look with me at verse 15 as we read about this curse. God says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So they're at the, this is when they're at the preposis or the entrance to Jordan, uh, the river Jordan. And they were getting ready to enter into the promised land after 40 years of wandering the desert. And in it, he has given him some blessings. He's given him some curses. And he says, here's the law of God. This is the curses. If you do not follow me, here's what you can expect. He goes on to say, cursed shall you be in the city. And cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. This is an overreaching covering almost all every aspect of life. He ends by cursed shall you be when you come in. And cursed shall you be when you go out. There's no escaping this curse if you fail to obey the word of God. Of course, during our study of Judges, we learned that Israel did not stay faithful to the covenant of God. And they did what was right in their own eyes. However, King Solomon warns us in Proverbs 14, you see it here on the monitor, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is what? Death. And this is what this family is going to find. Yet if Israel were to obey God... God did give them a promise of blessings. If they were faithful in the testings and trials, then God would rain down blessings. Look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Go over two chapters and look at verse 8. Because now he's giving the blessings. Moses writes, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, speaking of pregnancy, childbearing, and in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you. As he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with your might. So we're going to see here is this famine is not only a curse, but it's testing the faith of those that remain in the land. Will you trust him? Do you recognize this curse? Do you understand that blessing comes when you return to the Lord? <coughs> Unfortunately, excuse me, Israel had failed at this time to repent and confess their sins and they were suffering a famine that seemed to only affect them. Now, Scripture does not tell us if Elimelech was a faithful man of God, but it does show that even if he was, the godly can be adversely affected by the sins of others. We know this, right? Sin never affects just the person who's performing it, who's doing it. It affects much, much more. Now, what is most shocking in this prologue, in the beginning of this story, 
is that they decided to move to the country, to the nation of Moab. Daniel Block, a theologian, he lists five reasons why this move to Moab would have been a difficult choice. I mean, if you could move anywhere, would you, if you could, where would you go? Moab, for most Israelites, would not be the place that they would go for these five reasons. For one, is their origins. Moab was actually uh, cousins to Israel. They were the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Told you the story just real quickly last week. As a matter of review, uh, uh, Lot and his family had moved to Sodom. God destroyed that city. He saved Lot and his two daughters. Remember, Lot's wife turned back, turned into a pillar of salt. And as they went into the mountains, the, the daughters realized their, their fiancés were dead. They were not going to have any children. And in order to let Lot's name continue, they decided to get their father uh, drunk and excuse the language. But then they uh, got him drunk to where he didn't know what he was doing. And he had relations with them. And Moab was one of the children of his daughters. So for the Israelites, they knew this origin. And so they would really stay away from Moab. But also during their travels from Egypt to the promised land, the Moabites would not let them come by. They had to go by their lands to get to the promised land, and the Moabites would not let them do so. But then we also see that they hired a Balak, the false prophet. We saw this several years ago in Numbers, is they hired a prophet to prophesy against them, to curse them. He would not do so. So eventually Balak uh, gave them the advice is to send your women over there, seduce them, and in that way God will curse them. And God did. 24,000 men of Israel died because of that scenario. But not only see that is number four is that there was actually a constitutional thing in the law is that no Moabite could enter into the temple or the tabernacle at that time until the 10th generation. And so they weren't even allowed to come in and worship. And not only that is just not too recently through the through the uh, rule of Joshua and then Ehud, the left handed assassin, one of our favorite judges, Eglon, the king of Moab, was a continual um, enemy of Israel, always attacking them. But in all these ways, we see that going to Moab was a difficult choice for them, but hence they decided to do that. So this choice to leave Bethlehem for the pagan country of Moab was a big decision. They would no longer have access to the tabernacle, to the, to the sanctuary. They would not be there with the priests. It was a big decision, probably not taken lightly, I would assume, by this family. It would have not been a popular choice with the family, their neighbors, notwithstanding the command of Yahweh is to stay in the land of promise. So not only is there a famine, but the second observation is that of three consecutive funerals. Three consecutive funerals. It seems that their escape to Moab lasted much longer than anticipated. The author begins by stating that the family sojourned. Remember, they a short stay. They traveled, but then notes that they remained there. In other words, they made a place there. They made a home there. It seems at first they were just escaping the famine. Instead, they decided to remain in the land by establishing residency and marriage. They remained in Moab, the author tells us, for 10 years, leaving only when faced with more poverty and better opportunities back in Bethlehem. After escaping from famine while making home in Moab, the two sons decided to marry women from Moab. Again, 
This was against the command of Yahweh. It also seems that they were willing to disown their inheritance of Bethlehem. And this is a very big deal. They are like Lot who pitched his tent towards Solomon, only to eventually make their home in that wicked city. Of course, we know what happened to that city as destroyed by God. And this is the one reason Moab actually exists. So in this case, they decided to leave the lands that God had given them and to stay in Moab. Moab. And after 10 years, all three men are buried away from their homes and the land that was given to them by the divine right by God. It's a sad, tragic story. Believing they were escaping to a better place, they found their final resting place in a foreign land, far from home, leaving three women to deal with their decisions to leave. And this leads us to the third and last observation before we get into what it means for us. And that is of fruitlessness. Fruitlessness. Not only is Naomi a widow with no prospects, but so are the younger two women. There's no husbands, there's no home, and there's no hope for them. In those times, there was no social net for widows. There was no general welfare or monthly stipend for those with no work or no job training. You and I have to remember that women in those days were, a, a very, were in a very precarious position if they were widowed or not married, if they were single. To make matters worse, even, uh, it seems that the both daughter-in-laws were barren with no children after 10 years. There is no one to continue the names of their husband. That family, they had abandoned their homes and now they're going to find themselves with no descendants. No one to carry on in the family name. Fruitlessness. Even if they returned to Bethlehem, there would be no young men to inherit the lands that were given to them by God. They jumped from the frying pan into the fire. To escape a bad situation, they wound up in a much worse one, from calamity to tragedy. To summarize this, Naomi went into the land with her husband and two children and was left alone with only her daughter-in-laws, no prospects for a better life. The story of this family so far is a great example of Judges 21-25, where we read that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they reaped the consequences of that. In this case, it cost Elimelech and his family dearly. Now, last week, Pastor Moretta shared that we need to see the larger story of God's redeeming grace, hence why we call this uh, redemption. The book of Ruth advances the story of God's redeeming grace to Adam's fallen race. And it also magnified God's kindness and faithfulness to his children. This week he notes, as you see here in the monitor, is that you and I need a greater appreciation of God's providence. God is present in the lives of these seemingly insignificant characters from, a, from again, a village that many people did not know at this time, displaying his meticulous providence just as he, he is at work in our own lives. So as we look at here, we're going to see God's sovereignty and human choices, human responsibility. As we contemplate this calamity that's brought on the, by the famine and the tragedy that follows this family because of their decisions, we are brought face to face with that tension between God's sovereignty and providence and human choices. 
In this case, we see the sovereignty and providence of God in placing a curse upon an unfaithful nation in the form of a famine and the consequences of an unfaithfulness of the family as they make wrong choices and decide to leave the country. So first, as we consider this and what this means for us today, I want to consider the sovereignty and providence of God. In Isaiah chapter 45, we read this. Yahweh says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you did not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. He's making a point here. He goes on, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness and I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Now, this can be a difficult passage for many, especially for those who want to believe that God is nothing but love. God is love, 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 love. He does nothing to harm us. All that God does is love. But what they neglect to understand is that God is also God of justice. He is a God of righteousness and a God of holiness. There is nothing that happens in this world without his decree. We, we, we continually many times think that we, we, we almost have a, a deism in thought. Now, deism is the belief that God created all things, that there is a God, but after he created it, he walked away and he just watches it goes. Kind of remember, some of you might be old enough to remember an alarm clock where you take an alarm clock and you would wind it up and then you would set it down and it would just slowly go until it, 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 you know, it died. And sometimes that's what a deist believes, that everything that happens in this world is not because of God. But I want to share with you this morning, the truth that we find in Scripture is that God is sovereign. There is nothing that happens in this world or to you and I that is not decreed from the hand from the hand of God. This becomes very clear as Yahweh asks Job a rhetorical question. God says to Job, who has a cleft or who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? And a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert where there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with water. Who can do that? It's a rhetorical question. No one can do it. Only God can do that. Even the weather patterns are controlled by his powerful hand. This authority extends to all of the natural and supernatural world. There is nothing outside God's purview. God looks across all realms and says, mine. This is mine. Scripture points out in Proverbs 21 that even that of our political leaders belongs to God. Solomon says the king's heart is a stream of water. Can think of a, a stream of water, maybe a fountain coming down uh, out of a faucet. He says the king's heart is a stream of water. It's coming down, but the Lord of the hand of the Lord turns it whatever he wills. And get that image of, of a water faucet and you're taking your hand and you're moving it around the sink. The king thinks he's in control, thinks he's in power, thinks his decisions are all his, but it's the 
hand of God that moves even the hearts of man. John Piper writes that nothing can successfully stop any act or any event or design or propose that God intends to certainly bring about. No one can stop his hand. The psalmist sings in Psalms 115, you'll see it here on the monitor, our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. God's sovereignty also includes his providence. John Piper calls it his purposeful sovereignty. I want you to write that down if you're taking notes. I think this is good. Purposeful sovereignty. What does it mean that God is sovereign? <clears throat> that God is providence? I believe it's here on the monitor. It says here, the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful. So let's just dwell on that for a moment. God will complete all that he has put into motion. There is nothing, no one that can thwart his will. He will be completely successful, John Piper writes, in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. Uh, John MacArthur makes the, the joke that when he's talking about climate change and, and all these things, he says, if you people are, are worried about what's happening to the planet, wait until you see what God has planned for it. As you're reading Revelation. As he burns it all up. But it also means that you and I know that our salvation is in God. He will complete all things that play in God's providence then. So God's sovereignty is his decision. His providence is how he carries his plan into action. It's how he makes it happen. He guides all things towards his ultimate goal. And he leads it to the final conclusion. This is so important for us to understand. In other words, let me share with you, this is important. There are no coincidences in life. Now, we, we, use this, though, we use those words many times to try to describe what's happened, but there are no coincidences. By the way, there are no accidents in life. All things happen because God says, let it be. The same word that spoke those in Genesis 1 says that today. God does not respond to man's actions. Many times we think of God or life as a great checkerboard and I make a move and then God has to respond to me. No, God is the ultimate chess player with the first move who moves and you and I are just reacting to him and to what he's doing. There's no way we can checkmate him. Even if he was playing checkers, there's no way you're going to double. What's it? King him? King me? Queen me? Whatever that is. We're not jumping over God. And this is so important because many of us don't understand the importance of God's sovereignty and how deep it goes in our lives. R.C. Sproul remarks that for everything in our life, there is a purpose, including those events we define as tragedies. So take a moment and think of your life. Some of you have life stories and life experiences that many of us could not even comprehend or understand. But what we do need to know is that God is the one who decreed each and every moment of your life. We always joke, does God choose the Super Bowl winners? I would say yes. 
Does he choose the NBA championship? Yes, hence why Denver's going to win. God plans every moment of every second because it's working for his final goal in each of our lives. While Piper reminds us that God's sovereignty is governed, though, it's what you and I have to understand because we don't like anyone leading our lives. We don't always trust someone's advice. We don't, we don't want to leave it to others. You and I have to remember when it comes to God and his sovereignty and his providence in which he makes everything happen as it should, we need to remember that God's sovereignty and providence is governed by his wisdom along with his justice and mercy. In other words, this great God of ours is someone that you can trust to put your life in, to believe in, to know that he has the best for us. Now, instead of this truth leading us to fatalism or despair, to say, well, then I just give up. Jesus, take the wheel. I don't know what's going on. It's not to lead us to that. But this truth is to bring us comfort knowing that we can never be outside of God's hand and his protection and his leading. It's to give us an encouragement to know that even today may be dark, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's also give us strength during difficult, turbulent times. The famine in the land of Israel was both a judgment against Israel and it was also a test to Elimelech designed to bring them into repentance and final covenant. However, like those described in Revelation 16, 9, during the end of the age, where it says they were scorched by fire, heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, yet they did not repent and give him glory. See, here's the thing. How many times have we found ourselves complaining about our life? How much we make, where we live, the car we drive, the job I have, the spouse I have, the children we have, whatnot. We're always complaining. Why is it like this? Well, the first truth is, is this is God's plan for your life. So when you grumble about the famines in your life, the funerals in your life, the fruitlessness in your life, this is God's plan for you. It's his good, wise choice. That's to work for his glory and your good. Now, the other side, though, is that there is human responsibility. In other words, there are choices that you and I make. And that's what we see here in Elimelech. God brings the famine to curse them, to test them. Elimelech fails this test because he chooses, makes a real choice that winds up having terrible cons consequences. That leads to the second truth, human responsibility for the choices we make. While God sovereignly decreed the famine that would lead him, uh, would lead Emelech to choose to leave Israel, his departure demonstrated actually unfaithfulness and a lack of trust in the providence and promises of Yahweh. And his lack of trust affected his whole family. Sinclair Ferguson notes that instead of turning back to the Lord, they turned their back on the Lord and went to live in Moab. Now, before we're too harsh on that family, on Elimelech, many of us do that 
many times a day probably. Where God is getting us to turn to him, but we turn away. Decisions we make are real choices with real consequences, even when it comes to the sovereignty of God. The Bible says that one day Jesus will judge the works of the living and the dead and that all of our actions and thoughts will be tried by fire. Again, King Solomon warns in Proverbs 21 too, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but it's the Lord who weighs the heart. So our choices do have real meaning, even in the providence and sovereignty of God. Well, let's see how this works out. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would, near the end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. What you and I are learning from this passage in Ruth so far is that Elimelech should have demonstrated his faith during those difficult times. His choices should have been much different. He should have trusted, found comfort, found strength and encouragement, even in the midst of that famine, knowing that God is in control. So as a matter of view, what we're seeing here is that Elimelech did not walk in faith. And so far, as a matter of view, I want to share with you what faith is. Some of you haven't been here before with us. First, I believe I have these on here, hopefully. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of not seen. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at it, verse 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the convictions of things not seen, not something I'm holding on to. It's not something tangible. For by it the, old peop- the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So faith is the substance of things hoped for. But then secondly, we see that faith is bold obedience to God's word, as we've said before, in defiance of circumstances and consequences. Elimelech failed in both of these. Look at verses 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he is called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Well, that's nice. But go on. He went out not knowing where he was going. Sounds like most husbands, husbands, right? By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, Abraham is different. God told him to leave his homeland and go to a land that he did not know with a people he did not know and to live in his land. And he never received. He lived the rest of his life in tents, as did his children and grandchildren. They never received the promised land. But here he was able to believe God or had confidence in God that it didn't matter what the circumstances was. And it doesn't matter the consequences. He was going to obey God. Eliminate did not. He made the choice to not obey God. He looked at the circumstance and never even thought of the consequences. And then lastly, one that I like to share is faith is a confident trust in the person of God. And Lemonek did not trust God. He did not believe that God was good or just or wise. Hebrews 11, 6 For whoever would draw near to God 
must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Elimelech neither sought the Lord nor desired to draw near to him. His choice was to run from God, to get away from God. It didn't matter where he was going to go. He was going to go somewhere where he thought were greener pastures. But how many of us have made those same choices over our lives? We did not trust the person of God. We did not draw near to him. We did not boldly follow him. The circumstances got too fiery. It was too hot. We, we neglected to consider the consequences of our disobedience. Now we say faith is important. Because the Bible tells us it's important. Faith is important because it is the only way for you and I to enter the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul writes, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He goes on to say, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You and I have to trust in him and it comes from the word of God. As God tells us what he is doing, what will you and I have here in, his, in, in, this, in the Bible, in the scriptures, is God's revealed will. He is to everything that he's decreed for us to know. That we may live lives of godliness and holiness. It's the only path to be right with God. The Bible tells that we are made right with God only through faith or declared right with God through faith. And it's only the path to peace with God. The only way you and I can have peace is through faith. Paul again writes in Romans, since we have been justified, declared right by God by faith, we have peace with God. Elimelech didn't have any of this. And he died in a land far from his family and friends and the land that God had given him. What this family neglected to realize as even in dark, turbulent, difficult times, God is working out his plan and purposes. Everything you go through is God's design for you to make you more like Christ. I think Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day he comes again. So think of your life. Everything was brought by God. Now, for some of you, you might say, well, then I have a problem with God. Because I went through as a child, no one should go through. The pain, the loss that I have suffered, it is not right. However, the Bible tells us that that was God's good and wise and perfect plan for you. They should have known better than to leave their homeland for better pastures. Earlier in our scripture reading, Landon pointed out that many of God's children accomplished great feats of faith. Remember those great things? Yet some, as he got to the end of that passage, suffered terrible tragedies and calamities. They were boldly obeying God's word, and it cost them. They were burned at the stake. It says they were sawn in two. Some were given over to the lions. Maybe you know the story I've shared before that Nero, uh, the, the emperor of Rome, he would take Christians and he would put them and tie them to a stake in the road. He would put pitch and tar over them and light them up. They were the street lamps during the night. 
Now think of this. This was God's divine decree for them. But it was also a choice they made to stay faithful. So both worked together to accomplish his purposes. The Bible's called us to be faithful in the midst of God's sovereignty and providence. No matter where he leads us, we are to trust in him. All of these were the results of God's purposeful sovereignty and human responsibility. Some of you are suffering famine today in your life. You're having a drought. Not much is happening. Maybe even funerals. It's sickness, illness, death, pain, and even fruitlessness. It doesn't seem to be anything to your life. You're just like a rat in a maze, right? Or spinning around like a gerbil in a circle. You need to come and trust that God has a plan for your life. You are struggling trusting God in the testings and sufferings from your own sinful choices. It's not just that God has decreed this word, but it's your sinful choices that you're reaping the consequences of. Instead of blaming God, you should look to Christ, the founder and finisher of our faith. We are called to follow God no matter the circumstances, no matter the consequences. Too often, though, we try to move on to greener pastures to escape suffering rather than choosing to endure it for the glory of God and for our own good. So the questions I have for you this morning is where or who do you turn to when life becomes difficult? Or is your operandi, you know, what is that, modus operandi, modus, modus operandi? <clears throat> your MO, so it's that one. Is it to run? Is it to escape? Is it try to, to flee from that which God is trying to work in your life? How do you respond to tragedies and calamities? Do you shut down? Do you begin to doubt the goodness of God? How do you endure the suffering that comes in your life? Remember, some of us uh, suffer throughout our lives with many things, illnesses and things of that nature, maybe even lack of finances. How are we enduring that? Are we finding comfort, encouragement, and strength? In what ways do you doubt the wisdom and goodness of God's sovereignty and providence? We say that phrase, God will not give you more than you can take. Okay, that's not true. God will give you more than you can take. Only that you may look to him. What choices are you making today that may bring dire ramifications for you and your family? Husbands, fathers, you cannot sin without affecting your family, your wife. Let me say that for the spouse as well as for the children. There are no secret sins. All will be revealed, the Bible tells us. And what choices are you making today are you jumping from the frying pan into the fire? That's causing you to doubt even more God. Let me remind you quickly of our responsibilities. 
to those temptations, those trials, those trespasses, those troubles, because these things are common in all of our lives. So let me give it to you. I think it's here on the monitor. So you can take a picture of it with your phone to make it easy if you have it. His temptations are designed by Satan to draw you away from God and destroy your character. That's what God is trying to do with temptation, or Satan is trying to do. He's wanting to draw you away from God. He's wanting to destroy your character. It did this to Elimelech. He was tempted to get away from Bethlehem, and he did so. The next one we see, I believe, are tempta- temptation trials. Trials are designed by God to draw us closer to him and build our character. So those two things are typically the same situation. We see this in Ruth. God says, here's a trial. Here's a curse. I'm putting a famine on the land. Satan then is tempting Elimelech, leave, leave. Don't trust God. So instead of being built up and being drawn to God, he was drawn away. This happens in your same in your life. Whatever you're experiencing in life right now is God's plan for you. God is testing you. Satan is trying to tempt you. Hence your prayer should be at the beginning of the morning. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So that you too may pass the test. The next one I believe are trespasses. These are hearts caused by the sins of others. Here's where we need to make sure that bitterness and resentment does not reside in our hearts. Because again, God is working through those. That's God's sovereignty. That's human responsibility. Then the last one is troubles. And this is where the the emphasis, as we're going to see in the next two weeks, this is where Naomi finds herself. They're usually, but not always, consequences of her own sinful choices. That's what we're seeing here. God's sovereignty in preparing whatever is happening, our choices to what God is doing. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, don't fear. Wherever you're at, whatever's going on, Scripture promises that God is faithful and he calls us to be faithful. He promises to grant us a greater measure of faith when we request Remember, it's not the quantity of your faith, but the quality of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. That should be Jesus Christ. That brings us the victory that's found in Romans. I believe I may have it here, chapter 8, where he says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, death, anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, this is a man who was living out the purposes of plan of God, which caused him to be shipwrecked, which caused him to be beaten, which caused him to be stoned, which caused him eventually his death, but yet it was his human choice to continue to get up and walk and obey God. He says, nothing can separate you from God. Be comforted in the fact that one day there will be no longer any famines, no longer any funerals, and no longer any fruitlessness, but joy in the presence of God our Father. So no matter what God sovereignly brings into your life, let us rejoice that all things work for his eternal purposes in glorifying our God and our good, and that we may choose to remain faithful. Confess and repent. 
If you doubted the goodness and wisdom of God or you're suffering adversity because of your own choices. Let me close with this as the worship team prepares to come up and Randy. Where Jesus said, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon you and or take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's not be a limit. Let's trust in the God who is faithful. There we had bowed and every eye closed. I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider this passage of scripture, just five simple verses. But there's a lot there. God's providence and sovereignty, human responsibility, work. I don't want you jumping from the frying pan into the fire. You, the, God chooses the frying pan that you and I are in. You and I choose the fire. Let's choose to trust in the one who has planned and decreed all things, that we may be found faithful. Amen? Would you pray and ask God to find, for that you may find comfort, strength, and encouragement in this spiritual truth, and that you may respond to whatever it is that the Spirit may be calling you to today. Randy? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.